0: Welcome to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman, And this is it. Kind of. Almost.
1: Right? We've at least come to the end of the Chapter 2 recap episodes. Today is Part 7. This is covering pages 121 to 141 in the Orb 2012 edition. And I'm pretty excited that we've, we've reached the end here, but of course, we are going to have at least one discussion episode after this, though I think we're all, all suspecting it's going to be more than one, and I'm very excited for that. Uh, also, very excited to let listeners know that I have finally released an episode that I've actually been sitting on for a really long time, and this is a solo episode that I did on The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Uh, we released this as one of our monthly Patreon episodes, and man, I had... So much fun revisiting that classic, classic book. I had not read it in decades. And this is actually something that I wound up doing because of one of our listeners, one of our really awesome Patreon supporters. Uh, he had me do an episode on the Stephen Baxter novel, The Time Ships, which is a sequel to The Time Machine. And uh, yeah, this was just like a sneaky way to force me to also do a time, The Time Machine. And I will say that as a lover of trickster figures, I appreciate the cleverness there to, to get me to do two books.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I'm really excited to listen to this episode. I uh, revisited the Time Machine briefly because when we did the House on the Borderlands, we felt that there was an element to that story that was really a response to the Time Machine by H.G. Wells. So, I mean, that's a cool connection as well uh, within kind of the whole family and scope of our podcast network to to kind of listen to both of those episodes too. So, I'm really excited to listen to your coverage of the Time Machine. I haven't revisited it in a long long time and just kind of skimmed it a couple months ago. But um, man, that that's awesome. Also, congrats to our sneaky patron for making (laughs) both novels. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have told
1: people that's how that happened, because I've just opened myself up to more mischief, though. I'm a fan of mischief, so I say bring it on.
0: <laughs> well, we are here with peace today by Gene Wolfe, as you know obviously if you 're listening to this episode, you 've probably listened to a lot of the rest of the episodes <laughs> and We left off last time with a uh, an episode that really talked about two big fables and fairy tales of uh, three uh, in this chapter, and Wolf has been teasing this affair of the Chinese egg for. I don't know what feels like 100 pages. So it's probably (laughs) only been 20 or 30. And that's really what we're going to get in this final section of chapter two of Peace. Right. What we're covering today is is really just one long section. It's 20
1: pages. It's really, I think, one of the longest continuous sections in the entire book. And as you say, Brandon, it is finally the affair of the Chinese egg. I do think it's actually been a hundred pages that we've had this, (laughs) but even if it was not literally, it certainly felt like it. And so in my mind it was, but at any rate, we pick up where we left off with this story at last episode with we're in the back of James McAfee's Roadster on their way to the Lorne family farm to look at this egg. It's starting to rain now. The, the ominous clouds are what we really left with uh, when we last had some bit of this story in the middle of uh, what we covered last episode. And so now it is starting to actually rain. And of course, right, Weir is in the open back seat of this roadster, this car. So he taps on the glass to get his aunt's attention so that he can squeeze into the front with the, the two grownups here. And there are some really great details about the car, uh, the roads, the impact that the rain is having on them that we would just totally overlook today, I think. For one, the roads are dirt. And so, you know, a powerful Midwestern afternoon storm is going to turn them to mud in just a a matter of an hour or so. And so that means that if they don't get to the house soon, they might just be stuck out here in the middle of nowhere. But they also don't have a map. Uh, the rain is making visibility poor, and so it's not just a matter of like getting to the house. It's it's also a matter of finding the road that even leads to the house. Or maybe, really, a better way to think about that is it's a matter of not missing that, right? So there's some anxiety. There's some high stakes here. And the other thing that is going on is that the rain is causing the spark plugs on the car to to short out intermittently. So the whole thing feels just you know fraught with danger. And I really love these details, right? I think most of us just kind of take for granted that cars are fairly isolated from really all but the most severe weather. But that clearly just was not the case 100 years ago. And I will say also, I just I just love this storm. Uh, I grew up in the
0: Midwest and don't live there
1: anymore. And I miss, I miss thunderstorms so much.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen a storm like this in a long time. And I, I really miss them quite a bit myself. I do want to point out with, with regard to these clouds here that... Maybe we could say that the cloud that was both the Princess Tower and the tall mast on St. Brandon's ship that we saw last episode, that must have been part of this oncoming storm. You know, there was probably a whole bunch of cloud formations in the sky if this storm kind of comes on this quickly. Uh, I'm not sure, though, if we're meant to connect that imagery here but it seems important that these symbols are also tied to this egg affair and also all of this serves to move the plot forward, the storm, I mean, and all these symbols. I don't know. Without the storm, though, who knows if, you know, as we'll see, as much hospitality would have been offered by Mrs. Lorne that it kind of allows everything to unfold in the way that it does.
1: Right. The storm is going to turn out to be super important. And this, the storm is really a big part of what I was thinking about last time when I was 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 saying that, yeah, we're probably actually did make the right choice to skip playing baseball with his friends, which presumably he could do any time and might not even like all that much because now he's on this adventure. And even though he gets a, a little bored in the back of the the roadster, this storm is going to provide some some real excitement, uh, though, you know, if they had actually gotten stranded out here, which, you know, that's not what's going to happen. But if that was actually what happened uh, I might not remember this so fondly because uh, being stuck, you know, the, being the third person in a uh, uh, the two seat sort of, you know, little, little enclosed area <laughs> with uh, people ha- who have a lot of romantic tension and one of whom you're related to uh, when you're a kid sounds like the worst way to spend a Sunday.
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing we didn't point out last episode, but we can bring it up here is like McAfee clearly doesn't want to bring... Dennis along. And it's like, you know what? You don't have a baseball glove or a bat. That's the problem. I'm going to make sure you get one of those so you don't have an excuse <laughs> to ruin <laughs> this uh, kind of crazy and weirdly fraught, not just with romance, but like my business interests event that uh, I, I'm engaged with with your aunt. So yeah, I'm going to buy you a baseball bat and then see
1: ya. Right. One of the things that we have to point out here that we're going to do a lot more of this in the discussion is just make sure that we're aware of the fact that, right, This affair of the Chinese egg here is just literally a fairy tale type quest that one of the suitors has to go on. But what's fun about this is that he's going on it, you know, with Olivia. He's going on it with the princess in the tower. And so we get to see that in operation. But the other thing that's happening here for all of the suitors is that one of their quests, one of their tasks, one of the things they have to do to woo Olivia is have a relationship with her nephew of some sort and so i think in the discussion episode we're going to want to spend some time evaluating you know which of these suitors we think is doing the best job of that perhaps from our perspective as sympathetic with the young weir but then also perhaps from olivia's perspective that that, that may not actually you know line up those may not equate to the same thing but but yeah i think buying him a baseball glove buying him a baseball bat so you don't have to take him with again is uh, it's a nice gift but it is also totally self-serving well, all right. So they are driving along a road that is turning to mud. Uh, also, totally low visibility here. But Olivia manages to see the gate to the Lorne family farm, and they do make it there, like just in time, like just before the road was going to become impassable. The farmhouse is old; it was actually built before the Civil War, or at least you know this is something that we're supposes uh, that is true based on the the fieldstone masonry of the house. It also doesn't seem to have a a front porch, because when they arrive, McAfee honks the horn to get the intention of the inhabitants so that they won't have to stand in the the, the rain. As it is, though, they get pretty wet, even just like making the the run from the car once Mrs. Lorne has the the door to the house open. And Mrs. Lorne explains that the the roads out here are not going to be solid again until at least tomorrow afternoon. So the three of them are just going to have to spend the night out here. So Mrs. Lorne is here at home with her daughter, Margie, who is just a little bit older than we're. And her husband, Mr. Lorne, is out on the property somewhere, uh, caught in the storm right now, obviously, but also likely with access to, to some kind of shelter from it. So she's not overtly, anyway, worried about him. And her husband, his name is Carl. Carl is the minister at the approved Methodist church, though Mrs. Lorne herself was raised in the Cardiff Brethren, and her grandfather had been a missionary in that church. And that is actually how we wound up in China. It's going to be part of the provenance of the
0: egg that we are all here for. Yeah, the the last section of this chapter is really kind of plotty. It's a nice bit of drama. And there are really a few things we should pause for before moving forward. But I mean, really, a lot of the stuff that happens here in my reading, at least, or at least this first glance is kind of uh, about driving the plot. But first of all, what we'll say is that little Margie here is Margaret Lorne, who we saw in the waiting room in chapter one. And Wolf loves to obscure names and give us these different senses of people based on their names as they're used in these contexts. We saw this in chapter one with like the Indian names people were giving one another and the way that nicknames function and all sorts of different things. But you know, this is something that Dostoevsky does a lot of, as well. He was evoked by Olivia in this chapter. And Dostoevsky can point out people's familiarity with one another or their need for formality and courtesy based on the way that his characters use one another's names. And, you know, here Wolf is saying Margie is just a little girl. That's that's who she is. She's not Margaret she's Margie right now. And this is a nice trick. It's not something I'm particularly interested in doing as a writer, but Wolf does this a lot and gives us kind of a lot to keep track of as a result. We should also pause to talk about Methodism here too. Methodism is a Protestant Christian sect that grew out of the 18th century revival movement in England. It was founded by Charles Wesley. Uh, Charles Wesley is known for writing like a ton of lyrics for hymns, including the words to Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Charles Wesley's brother, John Wesley, was also a founder and then also a man called George Whitefield. And I guess some pertinent things to focus on here as they relate to the text is that Methodism primarily spread through aggressive missionary work. It's how it spread to America, for instance. And there have been a ton of splits in the Methodist church. But I think one thing that is common to Methodism is that faith, once faith is demonstrated through one's charitable deeds or works of mercy. So there's a real emphasis on good works here. The Methodists also reject the Calvinist doctrine of the elect, which is to say that they believe that everyone is eligible to go to heaven. Anyway, because the Methodists were at least in part interested in the social impact of Christianity, they primarily sought out to convert people or bring people into their denomination. Who had fallen through the cracks of society. And in early American history, these people who fell through the cracks were slaves. So there's a lot of black Methodist churches, uh, lower working class people, laborers and, and criminals. But I think the focus really on missionary work is part of the reason why Wolf has chosen this egg to be in the household of a Methodist minister. But really the egg though came down through Mrs Lawrence family line. Lauren here means like forsaken or something like that, which is a strange name to give a family. But Mrs Lawrence family line was an offshoot of You know, the Brethren Church, which is an Anabaptist denomination, that's like you have to be born again type of thing. You get baptized when you believe, not as a child. And that has that religion also has pacifistic roots at its core. So, just a lot of religion stuff going on here. Again, one thing we have to think about is that none of these main characters really go to or attend. Church, unless it's useful to them. And we'll see a moment in a little bit, it's not going to be highlighted in the narrative, where Olivia talks about where she'd like to be a missionary. And she'd love to go to China, obviously. But the Bible for her in that context is going to be a mahjong table on a junk boat. So you see this kind of even symbolic sense that religion or Christianity is something that our characters use for their personal advantage Rather than this kind of transformative uh, spiritual social work practice, and as we're going to see, Mrs. Lorne is a different type of
1: character than we've met so far. And I think probably one of the biggest contrast, actually, that we're going to see within this chapter is between Mrs. Lorne, who's going to end up hosting Olivia and Weir for dinner here, and Stuart Blaine, who does the same thing. You know, just a you know a few episodes earlier, we we had him, and there they couldn't be more different people. And a lot of that is about Mrs. Lauren's religion, which she very much wears on her sleeve.
0: Right. We're going to also talk a little bit about hospitality uh, as we get deeper into this section.
1: Well, this is still a functioning farm here, even if the principal identity of the, the family really is that Carl is the minister of the approved Methodist church. And so right now, as I said already, Carl is out on the farm. He's inspecting you know, something, but there is a curing shed for the tobacco where he's probably anyway, taking shelter and the farm grows tobacco it may not be their principal crop, but they, they grow tobacco, even though they don't smoke because smoking is prohibited by their, their church. Uh, still, though, Carl's absence at the moment here is going to shape these interactions in this moment. And Mrs. Lorne usually prepares their biggest meal of a Sunday for the early afternoon for, for when they, they get home from church. And then they only have a little bit to eat at dinner time And She's aware that this is contrary to the customs of people who live in town, and she apologizes for the inability to offer her, you know, kind of unexpected guests uh, a proper meal. But there is tea, and this is a habit that she has from her family's time in China. Though she herself, we should be clear, she's never actually been to China, but the family likes tea because of the years that her uh, grandfather had spent as a, a missionary there. And we get A lot of material culture in the description of of preparing the the tea here. Uh, Weir goes into the kitchen with Margie to help prepare the tea. Margie makes a big deal about how they they don't use a ball for the the tea leaves. The pot itself really fascinates Weir. It's got faces painted on it that Margie explains are the faces of everyone who has ever owned the pot. Uh, And the deal is that the faces get painted on when those owners die. And then when it's full of faces, the the pot will break and and it's almost full now. And the way that she presents this is as if it's something kind of mystical. It's not when it's full, you know, we will break it and start a new tradition or it's no, it will break, you know, on its own through some kind of like, you know, numinous uh, power here. We also get some detail about the sugar. So they have fancy white sugar, but that is really just for company because otherwise they use tree sugar. Another thing that we get about material culture here is that James McAfee knows that Mrs. Lauren shops at a store. He asks her how the washing machine that she bought from him two years ago, uh, he asks her how that's doing, if it's still working all right. So we get, you know, a bit of a description here about like the gasoline engine, how it's difficult for her to start because you have to you know pull a rip cord. But otherwise, she says it's a serious improvement over washing clothes by hand. And that's a lot so far, but there is still one last bit of material culture that I'll point out. And this this has to do with the house itself. It's customary to set a formal table in the dining room when one has guests, but doing this would make a lot of work for Mrs. Lorne. And so Olivia asks if they could just eat in the kitchen the way that family would when there aren't any guests and they end up doing this. But it is clear that Mrs. Lorne, uh, and Mrs. Lorne, she's about 10 years older than Olivia. So it's clear that, Mrs. Lorne is just not sure if this is the right thing to do, though eventually, you know, she does relax into it. And, And I think just in general, Wolf does such an awesome job here of capturing a world that I think already felt lost to him in the 1970s, the early 1970s, when he was writing this book. And it's a world that I think, you know, we ourselves here in you know 2021, we would just feel totally lost if we traveled back in time, you know, 100 years when this story is taking place. There's just this material culture is so different from what we take
0: for granted. It's also a hospitality culture, kind of apart from a, a material culture. And I, I would really love to read a study or, or a book About hospitality culture in the US. I mean, I I really started thinking about hospitality as a serious topic after I recently reread The Odyssey, where it's just a core part of that book. Like, so much of that epic poem is about hospitality laws. But, you know, when did hospitality culture really shift in the US and for what reasons? I I suspect that, like, both IKEA and (laughs) True. Crime shows and twenty four hour news have something to do with it, uh, but I also think you know you could say that these things like cheap furniture and constant presentation with fear of the other and and uh, what's wrong with where we live and things like that contribute to a rise in what Roger Scruton has discussed as a term he uses called oikophobia. And in his use, this word has to do with kind of a repudiation of one's own home or one's own place. You know, like the idea of simply trusting one's neighbor, you know, the easy way in which Mrs. Lorne lets them know that the three guests will have to stay the night and the idea of having stuff ready for company and allowing the company to turn down the formal dining room. This whole social dance is really really fascinating to me and it's clearly rooted in some kind of cultural norms or expectations and I I think we're very far from this sort of hospitality culture today uh, you know as I mentioned but I, I'm really fascinated by hospitality as a cultural norm and kind of the laws that that govern it
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, this also is a huge part of the alienness of this world. I mean, you know, the neighborhood that we live in now is a neighborhood that we, we moved to since, you know, or within the life of, you know, doing this show. We were here for literally months before a single neighbor bothered to talk to us, like to come over and introduce themselves to us. And of course, you know, now there's been this massive pandemic. So we just don't know our neighbors at all. And it's, it's really weird, except for the part where it's not really
0: weird. That's what's normal now. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. It's such a fascinating topic to think about. Uh, but that's not what this show is for. So let's get back to the text
1: here. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're here for the plot. We're here for the affair of the Chinese egg. But I do think that hospitality is a huge part of what's going on in this chapter. So we will revisit this in the discussion, because as I said, I think the real contrast to this scene is is the Stuart Blaine business. And we, we are going to want to do a bit of, of thinking about you know dating and hospitality, you know, what social life is, <laughs> is like here in, in this world. It's Huge part of what this chapter is that we're getting to see, you know, from the perspective of a nine-year-old who's only seen it because he's, you know, just palling around with his with his aunt, and frankly, she's basically Indiana Jones to his
0: short round. I think here in this story, <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, yeah, what would what would happen if we got an Indiana Jones from totally from short rounds perspective? Though maybe that is the second Indiana Jones movie. Uh, Who knows? No, I think it is.
1: <laughs> yeah, Temple of Doom is one hundred percent a kids movie.
0: So <laughs> <laughs> well, let's return to the teapot here. Uh, this this is another example of one of these magical objects that one would be astonished if the object did what it pretended to do. If it was the toy gun that shot real bullets, like we saw in the last section, if this teapot really collected the faces of the dead, if a face appeared on it after an owner died, you'd be Utterly Shocked. And if it broke when it's full of faces, that would be shocking too. In some houses, I think an object like this wouldn't be put to everyday use. Yet it is here in the Lawrence house. And I think we then really get the impression that absolutely nothing goes to waste for this family. Also in this section, uh, we get an example of of Doherty's uh, fable as a theodicy, as an explanation for how God could both be good and their suffering in the world. Mrs. Lauren talks about her and her husband trying to find purpose in the death of their first child 14 years ago. And at first they thought that the child didn't make it because God wanted them to be missionaries and you're more likely to be selected as a missionary if you don't have a child when you're sent out. But that never happened. So they're left with this sense of not knowing what the death of their child has to do with God's plan for their lives, with God's providence, with God's goodness. And I was a little hard, I admit now, on on the kind of pat mode of arguing for there being a purpose for suffering or evil in the world. That we saw in Doherty's story. And I think Wolf has addressed that textually here. For better or worse, we keep living. And that's kind of the whole story until we die. And it's kind of the whole story of this story, right? I think
1: it's easy for us to lose sight of what we're doing here in this chapter, right? But chapter two is the story of Weir's time with Olivia, which is because of the death of Bobby Black, a death that he... You know, it's hard to even think of like what verb we should use there, but it's a a death that he's at least partially responsible for, and we're is very clearly, if not explicitly, trying to grapple with that. What does that mean for him? Right? Is he is he evil? You know, is he how responsible is he for the death of of Bobby Black, and what does that mean for him? Right? That might not be so much on his mind at nine, though he's almost certainly having those feelings, he might not really be able to articulate them so clearly at nine. But it's very clear that old man Weir, who's writing this book, is thinking about that, even as he's trying to not say that he's thinking about that.
0: Right. And Doherty's story might be entirely driven by the fact that Doherty knows this and is trying in some small way to console a child with a fable about how not all Evil actions are result in ultimate bad and things like that. But certainly, again, that's that's the discussion episode. Let's keep our mind on this text here a little bit longer in this section. I, I want to point out here that I think Wolf has just mastered this art of social discomfort and conversation. This whole scene is really wonderful. It's really rooted in Mrs. Lorne's dreams of travel. And the one thing that comes up is that. You know, after negotiating with her husband, Carl Lorne, over where they might be missionaries, they decided that anywhere is great, as long as it's not Alaska or as long as it isn't Eskimos, (laughs) as they say in the text. Then, of course, this could just be a joke about the weather, which farmers often talk about. But on the other hand, what we have here is another reference to to another indigenous U.S population. another reference to the history of America that is about its its land and its peoples. Um, even prior to uh, British expansion and the American expansion, manifest destiny, you know all of this stuff is kind of wrapped up here even in this little joke. This is 100% about the weather, right? That
1: that is definitely what this joke is about. <laughs> I I don't know if you had this experience in the army Brandon or not, but when I was getting done with, you know, advanced training and getting ready to go to my first duty station, we were all given like these forms to fill out that where we got to sort of Pick our kind of dream duty station and rank them. And, you know, we were told that this is something that the person who decides where we're going to go get stationed in our highly technical field might keep that in mind, right? Like, if there are multiple openings, <laughs> might say, like, well, okay, Glenn wants to go here and there's an opening there. And, you know, Johnny wants to go to this other place and there's an opening there. So I'll send them where they've asked to. Though, I don't know, to my mind, I think that person's more likely to, to just laugh and send us both to the place we didn't want to go to. But the point of the story is just to say that the one of those places, one of the few duty stations we could have gone to was in Alaska. And we were told explicitly by the drill sergeant who was giving us this form that if you put Alaska anywhere on your list, you are going to Alaska because nobody ever wants to get stationed there.
0: <laughs> I don't I don't remember Alaska being on the list. I, I definitely picked uh, places that were Anglophone or like u s territories or like something like Hawaii, yeah, but I did not end up i I think I put Colorado on the list and I did end up there, but I did not end up uh, in in any of the other places that I would choose I mean one thing that 's really funny about those lists, just as an aside is that they sell it to you as though like the military is your opportunity to travel around the world <laughs> in the United States, but really like you just live in a barracks and then walk to work wherever you are on a base that is like a colonial outpost in whatever country you end up in. That's its own thing. You get no sense of what the work is only like, they're like, where would you like to live? Not like, what job will you be doing there? How will you be spending your time there? Right. What are the hours? Is actually the question that we should have all been asking, but, <laughs> but nobody knows. And I think that
1: whole form was totally meaningless. But the point point really was just to say, yeah, that's kind of like you know the cultural idea of Alaska is that it's really cold and nobody wants to go there. I put Alaska, didn't get sent there, so that was it. Was all a lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's let's get back to the matter at hand. I seem to keep derailing us here, but we are at the middle act of this story. The middle act of the affair of the Chinese egg. And Wolf sets this part up mostly as a small character study. McAfee is clumsy and silent as they prepare for a small dinner. He does not really know how to navigate a kitchen. He doesn't even really know what goes into setting a table. Olivia, on the other hand, seems to be a wizard. Uh, She sets the table all by herself without even really seeming to do it. And she does this very quickly. And she's also full of laughter while she's doing this. And her laughter, her just sort of, you know, joie de vivre, I guess, sets Mrs. Lauren at ease, you know, where she's really been very comfortable about this entire bizarre situation of having to host these people overnight. And Olivia really includes everyone else in her joy and her laughter here, right? She jokes with Margie. She jokes with McAfee. She really just makes a fellowship out of this gathering and, and really just turns this into a really awesome experience for everyone. And then we get Mrs. Lorne, right? Mrs. Lorne is nervous about everything. I think mean, we've already seen her fret over, you know, where to serve dinner, for example. But she's also concerned about making sure that the parlor has a fire going in it for a while before they move in there after the meal, because it's going to be cold in there otherwise. And it turns out that she also is nervous, actually, about showing them the egg that they're really here to see. And the reason that she's nervous about that is because it is Sunday, and she thinks that it would be a sin to sell the egg or really to sell anything else, to engage in commercial activity on a Sunday. And she even thought that God had sent this storm so that Olivia and McAfee and Weir would have to stay overnight. And therefore they'd actually be able to look at the egg and talk about, you know, a price for it and so on on Monday. But Olivia puts Mrs. Lauren at ease here by suggesting that they do exactly that, right? That they save that stuff for for Monday, the negotiating, the commercial stuff. But, you know, maybe also they could see the egg now and then, you know, hold off on the actual sale until the next day. But when they move into the parlor to look at the egg, the egg is not there. And uh, now we have a mystery to solve.
0: <laughs> well, what I want to do here is emphasize Carl Orn's absence. He, he's kind of present in this text in a, in a strange way. He's really there with this crew of... In Mrs. Lawrence's decisions and her attitudes in the things she says, like Carl says, I'm foolish and you folks drove out here and all this rain. I almost get the impression that Carl is protesting this whole situation. Like maybe he had to go to the tobacco field. Maybe not. You know, farmers typically know what the weather is going to be like, as I said. And Sunday is already a work day for a minister, but it is also the Sabbath, the day of rest as well. And Mrs. Lauren indicates here also in a moment that Carl might have something to do with the missing egg as well. So it's very strange the degree to which Carl is absent in this story. Right. We can even just imagine, you know, from Carl's perspective that he is,
1: you know, the the minister at this church. And so after church on Sunday, that's a, a huge relief for him, right, that the most important thing he's got going on in his week is done. Uh, Mondays are usually a day that ministers will take off in, in in some sense though, that usually also means that's when they're getting started on the next sermon. And so take off really just means from from seeing parishioners unless they, you know, are in dire need of some some kind of help or uh the performance of some kind of ritual or something like that. And so for him, his sense of like a weekend away from his labor must start when he gets home from church and can have the big meal with his family, and then gets to hang out and relax. And so I think we can imagine, you know, a a 30 something dude, who just started his weekend. And the last thing he wants is to deal with a bunch of strangers who want to come over to
0: his house. And so he found something to go do. Right? That's my sense of it. Right? Yeah, I, I mean, that's my sense as well. There's another thing we haven't emphasized yet in the last chunk of Chapter 2, and I think that's the degree to which Dennis is explicitly being used by his aunt so that she can show Mrs. Lorne that she's just like her, really as a means of ingratiating herself, as Olivia ingratiating herself into this family. That's a word that we get in the text, so that's an explicit motivation here, at least in Weir's mind. And we've gotten the sense that Dennis is someone that Aunt Olivia begrudgingly accepts and then finds a use for, particularly when she's trying to keep a distance between herself and her suitors. But we also see in this section some real similarities uh, between Aunt Olivia and Margie their hair color is compared to one another's. It's dark for both of them, though not quite in the same way, but comparatively. They both play music. Margie is a bit of a free spirit, or so it seems. And maybe this is something we can also speculate on uh, when we think about the fable of of Ben Yaya and Naranj. Yeah, absolutely. I
1: think Margie Lauren is someone we might need to keep in mind here as being possibly the the woman who is seen in the, in the window, but yeah, we'll save that for the discussion. So yeah, let's get back to the egg, right? This egg that is not in the parlor where it is supposed to be. Margie says that her father took it to the laying house, which is to say the building where chickens lay eggs, though she doesn't volunteer this to the group. She doesn't tell like everyone who's assembled here in the parlor. She only whispers it in her mother's ear, which I have to say is just an awesome bit of, of characterization. This is a, a level of detail that I think a lot of writers would just skip over. And it's just brilliant here. But what this means is that the only thing to do is to send Margie out to the Lane house in order to get the egg. But right, it's still storming, and it's also getting dark, and so Olivia and McAfee do not want to send the child out into this uh, this this environment, into the storm. But Mrs. Lorne is pretty annoyed that her husband would actually do this with this valuable egg, and so she says it's not on their account that she's going to send her daughter out in the the dark in the storm to look for this egg but still right Olivia insists on sending Weir along with her and before they go out they have to get seriously rainproof to do this which for Weir means borrowing Mrs Lawrence's gear which right that's not going <laughs> to not going to fit him right and uh, they also then have to take an old fashioned lantern with them and an old fashioned for 1920s. so this is like a 19th century style lantern In The Laying House, Margie explains that her father sometimes uses a porcelain egg to put under a hen that's having trouble laying eggs. It it, it helps them somehow to relax and lay some eggs. But the egg that he normally uses broke recently, and so she thinks that her father must be using the fancy egg from China for this same purpose. And uh, there's a great bit here where she admits that this is a terrible idea because the egg has a picture of Jesus on it, and what if the hen makes the egg hatch by sitting on it? Then you'd end up with some kind of monstrosity with a hundred teeth that would take to living in the woods and eating cows and maybe even eating people whenever it can get them. But that is not going to happen tonight. Uh, They don't find the egg under any of the hens. They don't even find it anywhere else in the lane house. And so Margie then goes next to the barn. She takes Weir to the barn. And the reason is not to look for the egg. It's actually just that she thinks the barn is cool. She thinks it's like the coolest part of their farm. And she kind of <laughs> wants to show it off to Weir. She, she's also, I should say, very proud of the types of cows that they have. There's also a billy goat that she likes to peek in on. And she's got a, a real cool method for doing that that also keeps the goat from headbutting her. And she shows Weir how to do this. But he's a city boy, right? Or a town boy, at least. And he's clumsy about it and, and kind of stumbles, and he ends up putting his hand into a feeding trough, which, you know, that's hilarious. But this turns out to be a happy accident because this is actually where Mr. Lorne has hidden the Chinese egg. And it seems clear that he's hidden it. That is that is actually what's happened here. He's not using it for anything. But that's it. This The chapter just ends here, like really abruptly. And it ends with Weir and Margie about to take the egg back to the house. And so we don't, at least not at this point, we don't know who's going to end up with this egg, even though that's been a huge part of the drama of this chapter.
0: We don't really even get any further description of the egg either, which drives me a little crazy. I mean, (laughs) I guess we're told it has Jesus on it. And I suppose we can accept the description we've gotten earlier in the chapter from the townspeople that it has some Manchurian cultural imagery on it and whatnot associated with it. But what sticks out to Dennis in this moment is that the egg is rather large. It's so large that he needs two hands to carry it. So like a a giant egg. And also that it's porcelain and not ivory, as everybody thought. And he's very interested then in the materiality of the egg. And we've seen this kind of recur throughout this chapter in particular. The rest of the section, though, is just great. I really like the way that Margie and Den interact. She's older than him. Maybe she's closer to being a young teenager, but she's still a child and still young enough to just have a playmate without overthinking it. But she does do like I'm older than you type stuff. Like she double checks Dennis's work when he's trying to find the egg in a hen's nest. And here I think Wolf really wonderfully evokes or captures a sense of childhood. Like when you know you can do a task and you're capable of doing it. I mean, we're for instance, just lit a fire without real supervision by himself, even though I think Margie was in the room. When you're capable as a kid and you want to demonstrate it, but then people come and double check your work and you're like, it sucks, but it's also not that big of a deal because you're kind of used to that anyway. But you still kind of wish that they hadn't and you wish they had trusted you to do the work. You know, that's that's a whole thing that I like, kind of forgot about childhood, that I just kind (laughs) of fell in my body as I was reading this section. And, you know, that might also have to do with Weir's motivation when he pushes back on Margie, when she's telling him that, oh, yeah, I have this billy goat. And he's like, no, you don't. You know, he's really pushing back on the reality of this goat. And I think it's kind of getting back at her a little bit. But anyway, I mean, we've got a lot that we've kind of left unsaid in this section here, though maybe not too much, because there's just a lot that we're going to cover in our discussion of this chapter. Well, I think
1: you're right. Margie, I think is probably 11. She might be 12, but my sense is more 11. And certainly for me, 11 was the age at which I suddenly wanted to be taken seriously and wanted to be treated like an adult and suddenly felt like there was this huge gap in maturity between myself and my younger sisters, for example. Uh, of course, thinking back on that now, like thinking about like what age 11, you know, actually looks like from an adult perspective, <laughs> You're like, yeah, not, not anywhere near an adult yet, but yet nonetheless, it is a real developmental moment, I think. And so, yeah, this is Margie trying that on, right? Where she's trying to act as if she's kind of the adult supervision for we're in this moment. And you know we 've seen Wolf so many times, you know well when he writes about childhood a lot, but I think he just writes about childhood better than almost anyone else I can think of. I mean, he does write about childhood better than anyone else I can think of i can 't think of anyone who remembers childhood as well as Wolf does,
0: yeah, he captures things that I think you you really do tend to forget as an adult, um, but he 's not doing a roll doll type of thing anyway, or people who write books for children that 's about the reality. Of childhood from the perspective of a child. Like you'd feel like you're an adult in those sections and you're totally capable. Like something like George's Marvelous Medicine, which is a world doll book that I love, where the kid just is like mixing chemicals to give to his <laughs> grandmother, and like that's totally fine. She needs him to do that, and it's wacky. But I think Wolf, what Wolf does so well is reflect on the experiences of childhood, both. From the perspective as an adult, but also from the feelings of a child. And I, I actually don't know if I've read any other writer. You said Wolf does this better than anybody. I don't know anybody else who really does this. Though I don't know, maybe I've just not uh well read in this kind of mode of writing. But yeah, I Wolf is the only writer who I can think of who really does this as a as a practice. Right. I mean that's a great point. Right. Just even just
1: in general, people who are writing about kids usually are writing for kids also. And, and that's just not what Wolf is doing here. And it's not what Wolf has ever done ever when he's written about kids. And yeah, that's a, that's an important thing that Wolf does that I hadn't
0: really thought about before. So that's a great observation. Yeah, we don't even see it in something like *Summer of Night* by Dan Simmons, or like the coming of age horror novels. Like it, like they're they're so different. Like the adult content is there, and it's the adults that are dealing with it. But then the kids are kind of solving this mystery and going on an adventure, and you know, you 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 get the sense that like for them, this is just an adventure. And you, as the reader, are internalizing the real danger and horror and trauma of this, um, Wolf just has this totally different practice and perspective on reflecting on childhood from the perspective of an adult. And it's it's amazing. But that's a good place to stop this episode here. So that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn
1: McDormand. Please drop by the forum at claytemplemedia.com or the Clay Temple Media subreddit and uh, let us know who you think writes children, uh, at least in a way that is comparable to Wolf or just, you know, give us some suggestions Suggested reading—we'd love to love to hear that. And if you aren't already with us on Patreon at patreon.com/slash/claytemplemedia, please check it out. You can get immediate access to our episode on the time machine, as well as dozens and dozens, really, of other bonus episodes. So next time, we're going to be back with the discussion for Chapter 2, which is something we've been having a hard time refraining ourselves (laughs) from doing, I think, the last two recap episodes here. So we are ready for that, and we're looking forward to seeing you there. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.